0: On the Top of the Tower. Renin went to work in the same way as before. They entered a spacious hall paved with white and black flagstones, furnished with old sideboards and choir stalls, and adorned with a carved escutcheon which displayed the remains of armorial bearings, representing an eagle standing on a block of stone, all half-hidden behind a veil of cobwebs which hung down over a pair of folding doors. The door of the drawing-room, evidently, said Rennian. He found this more difficult to open, and it was only by repeatedly charging it with his shoulder that he was able to move one of the doors. Hortense had not spoken a word. She watched, not without surprise, the series of forcible entries which were accomplished with masterly skill. He guessed her thoughts and, turning round, said in a serious voice, It's child's play to me. I was a locksmith once. She seized his arm and whispered, Listen. To what? he asked. She increased the pressure of her hand to demand silence. The next moment he murdered, It's really very strange. Listen, listen, Hortense repeated in bewilderment. Can it be possible? They heard not far from where they were standing, a sharp sound, the sound of a light tap recurring at regular intervals, and they had only to listen attentively to recognize the ticking of a clock. Yes, it was this and nothing else that broke the profound silence of the dark room. It was indeed the deliberate ticking, rhythmical as the beat of a metronome, produced by a heavy brass pendulum. That was it and nothing could be more impressive than the measured pulsation of this trivial mechanism, which by some miracle, some inexplicable phenomenon, had continued to live in the heart of the dead chateau. And yet, stammered Hortense without daring to raise her voice, no one has entered the house. No one. And it is quite impossible for that clock to have kept going for twenty years without being wound up. Quite impossible. Then Serge Renin opened the three windows and threw back the shutters. He and Hortense were in a drawing room, as he had thought, and the room showed not the least sign of disorder. The chairs were in their places, not a piece of furniture was missing. The people who had lived there and who had made it the most individual room in their house had gone away, leaving everything just as it was, the books which they used to read, the knick-knacks on the tables and consoles. Renin examined the old grandfather's clock, contained in its tall, carved case, which showed the disc of the pendulum through an oval pane of glass. He opened the door of the clock. The weights hanging from the cords were at their lowest point. At that moment, there was a click. The clock struck eight with a serious note which Hortense was never to forget. How extraordinary, she said. Extraordinary indeed, said he. "'for the works are exceedingly simple "'and would hardly keep going for a week. "'And you see nothing out of the common?' "'No, nothing. "'Or at least?' "'He stooped, and from the back of the case "'drew a metal tube which was concealed by the weights, "'holding it up to the light. "'A telescope,' he said thoughtfully. "'Why did they hide it? "'And they left it drawn out to its full length. "'That's odd.' What does it mean? The clock, as is sometimes usual, began to strike a second time, sounding eight strokes. Renin closed the case and continued his inspection without putting his telescope down. A wide arc led from the drawing room to a smaller apartment, a sort of smoking room. This also was furnished, but contained a glass case for guns, of which the rack was empty. Hanging on a panel nearby was a calendar with the date of the 5th of September. Oh cried Hortense in astonishment. The same date as today. They tore off the leaves until the 5th of September, and this is the anniversary. What an astonishing coincidence. Astonishing, he echoed. It's the anniversary of their departure, twenty years ago today. You must admit, she said, that all this is incomprehensible. Yes, of course. But all the same, perhaps not. Have you any idea? He waited a few seconds before replying. What puzzles me is this telescope, hidden, dropped in that corner at the last moment. I wonder what it was used for. From the ground floor windows you see nothing but the trees in the garden. And the same I expect from all the windows. We are in a valley without the least open horizon. To use the telescope one would have to go up to the top of the house. Shall we go up? She did not hesitate. The mystery surrounding the whole adventure excited her curiosity so keenly that she could think of nothing but accompanying Rennine and assisting him in his investigations. They went upstairs accordingly, and on the second floor came to a landing where they found the spiral staircase leading to the Belvedere. At the top of this was a platform in the open air, but surrounded by a parapet over six feet high. There must have been battlements which have been filled in since, observed Prince Renine. Look here, there were loopholes at one time. They may have been blocked. In any case, she said, the telescope was of no use up here either, and we may as well go down again. I don't agree, he said. Logic tells us that there must have been some gap through which the country could be seen, and this was the spot where the telescope was used. He hoisted himself by his wrists to the top of the parapet and then saw that this point of vantage commanded the whole of the valley, including the park with its tall trees marking the horizon, and beyond, in a depression in a wood surmounting a hill at a distance of some seven or eight hundred yards, stood another tower, squat and in ruins, covered with ivy from top to bottom. Renine resumed his inspection. He seemed to consider that the key to the problem lay in the use to which the telescope was put, and that the problem would be solved if only they could discover this use. He studied the loopholes one after the other. One of them, or rather the place which it had occupied, attracted his attention above the rest. In the middle of the layer of plaster which had served to block it, there was a hollow filled with earth in which plants had grown, He pulled out the plants and removed the earth, thus clearing the mound of a hole some five inches in diameter, which completely penetrated the wall. On bending forward, Renin perceived that this deep and narrow opening inevitably carried the eye above the dense tops of the trees and through the depression in the hill to the ivy-clad tower. At the bottom of this channel, in a sort of groove which ran through it like a gutter, the telescope fit so exactly that it was quite impossible to shift it, however little, either to the right or to the left. Renin, after wiping the outside of the lenses, while taking care not to disturb the lie of the instrument by a hair's breadth, put his eye to the small end. He remained for thirty or forty seconds, gazing attentively and silently, Then he drew himself up and said in a husky voice, It's terrible. It's really terrible. What is? she asked anxiously. Look. She bent down, but the image was not clear to her, and the telescope had to be focused to suit her sight. The next moment she shuddered and said, It's two scarecrows, isn't it? Both stuck up on the top. But why? Look again he said. Look more carefully under the hats. The faces. Oh, she cried, turning faint with horror. How awful. The field of the telescope, like the circular picture shown by a magic lantern, presented this spectacle. The platform of a broken tower, the walls of which were higher in the more distant part and formed, as it were, a backdrop, over which surged waves of ivy. In front, Amid a cluster of bushes, were two human beings, a man and a woman, leaning back against a heap of fallen stones. But the words man and woman could hardly be applied to these two forms, these two sinister puppets, which, it is true, wore clothes and hats, or rather shreds of clothes and remnants of hats, but had lost their eyes, their cheeks, their chins, every particle of flesh, until they were actually and positively nothing more. Then two skeletons. Two skeletons, stammered Hortense. Two skeletons with, with clothes on. Who carried them up there? Nobody. But still. That man and that woman must have died at the top of the tower years and years ago, and their flesh rotted under their clothes and the ravens ate them. But it's hideous. Hideous! cried Hortense, pale as death, her face drawn with horror. Half an hour later, Hortense, Daniel, and Rénine left the Château de Halangre. Before their departure, they had gone as far as the ivy-grown tower, the remains of an old dungeon keep more than half demolished. The inside was empty. There seemed to have been a way of climbing to the top at a comparatively recent period by means of wooden stairs and ladders, which now lay broken and scattered over the ground the tower backed against the wall which marked the end of the park. A curious fact which surprised Hortense was that Prince Renin had neglected to pursue a more minute inquiry, as though the matter had lost all interest for him. He did not even speak of it any longer, and in the inn at which they stopped and took a light meal in the nearest village, it was she who asked the landlord about the abandoned chateau. But she learned nothing from him, for the man was new to the district and could give her no particulars. He did not even know the name of the owner. They turned their horses' heads towards La Marais. Again and again, Hortense recalled the squalid sight which had met their eyes. But Renine, who was in a lively mood and full of attentions to his companion, seemed utterly indifferent to those questions. But after all, she exclaimed impatiently, we can't leave the matter there, it calls for a solution. As you say replied. A solution is called for. Monsieur Rossigny has to know where he stands and you have to decide what to do about him. She shrugged her shoulders. He's of no importance for the moment. The thing today... Is what? Is to know what those two dead bodies are. Still, Rossigny... Rossigny can wait, but I can't. You have shown me a mystery which is now the only thing that matters. What do you intend to do? To do? Yes, there are two bodies... You'll inform the police, I suppose. Gracious goodness, he exclaimed, laughing. What for? Well, there's a riddle that has to be cleared up at all costs. A terrible tragedy. We don't need anyone to do that. What? Do you mean to say that you understand it? Almost as plainly as though I had read it in a book, told in full detail with explanatory illustrations. It's all so simple. She looked at him askance, wondering if he was making fun of her. "'but he seemed quite serious. "'Well?' she asked, quivering with curiosity. "'The light was beginning to wane. "'They had trotted at a good pace, "'and the hunt was returning as they neared La Marais. "'Well,' he said, "'we shall get the rest of our information "'from people living round about, "'from your uncle, for instance, "'and you will see how logically all the facts fit in. "'When you hold the first link of a chain, "'you are bound, whether you like it or not, "'to reach the last. "'It's the greatest fun in the world.' Once in the house they separated. On going to her room, Hortense found her luggage and a furious letter from Rossigny in which he bade her goodbye and announced his departure. Then Renine knocked at her door. Your uncle is in the library, he said. Will you go down with me? I've sent word that I am coming. She went with him. He added, one word more. This morning, when I thwarted your plans and begged you to trust me, I naturally undertook an obligation towards you which I mean to fulfill without delay. I want to give you a positive proof of this. She laughed. <laughs> the only obligation which you took upon yourself was to satisfy my curiosity. It shall be satisfied, he assured her gravely, and more fully than you can possibly imagine. Monsieur Deglaroche was alone. He was smoking his pipe and drinking sherry. He offered a glass to renine who refused. "'Well, Hortense,' he said in a rather thick voice, "'you know that it's pretty dull here, except in these September days. "'You must make the most of them. "'Have you had a pleasant ride with Renine?" "'That's just what I wanted to talk about, my dear sir,' interrupted the prince. "'You must excuse me, but I have to go to the station in ten minutes "'to meet a friend of my wife's. "'Oh, ten minutes will be ample.' Just the time to smoke a cigarette. No longer. He took a cigarette from the case which Monsieur de handed to him, lit it, and said, "I must tell you that our ride happened to take us to an old domain which you are sure to know, the Domaine de Alangre." Certainly, I know it, but it has been closed, boarded up for twenty-five years or so. You weren't able to get in, I suppose. Uh, yes, we were. Really, was it interesting? Extremely. We discovered the strangest things. What things? asked the Count, looking at his watch. Renine described what they had seen. On a tower some way from the house there were two dead bodies. Two skeletons, rather. A man and a woman still wearing the clothes which they had on when they were murdered. Come, come now. Murdered? Yes, and that is what we have come to trouble you about. The tragedy must date back to some twenty years ago. Was nothing known of it at the time? Certainly not, declared the Count. I never heard of any such crime or disappearance. Oh really, said Renin, looking a little disappointed. I hoped to obtain a few particulars. I'm sorry. In that case, I apologize. He consulted Hortense with a glance and moved toward the door. But on second thought... Could you not at least, my dear sir, bring me into touch with some persons in the neighborhood, some members of your family who might know more about it? Of my family? And why? Because the Domaine de Halangre used to belong and no doubt still belongs to the Diggleroses. The arms are an eagle on a heap of stones on a rock. This at once suggested the connection.